James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises in its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits to his creatures. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, as we've now read this passage of Scripture in the book of James, God, our hearts desire to understand what we've read, and our hearts desire to better understand who you are and what you are doing in our lives, specifically as it relates to trials and difficulties that we go through. Lord, we know that this is a very serious subject. We know that this is a challenging subject because trials are tough. Suffering is real and it's hard and it's painful. And yet, Lord, we're so thankful that in you we have the resources available to us to not only endure, but to actually joyfully endure in the midst of trials because of who you are and what you've done for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to Alter our perspective. Help us to see things the way that you see them. And Lord, we pray for any in our midst that are currently in the middle of a trial, they're suffering in some way, that God, you would prove to once again be faithful to your children. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful that you love us. We're so thankful that you've gathered us here together to love one another today. And Lord, we pray that you would now again just bless us in our time in your word. Use it to change us and make us more like Jesus, we ask. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this is week two of three of uh, the, the topic of trials that we're studying together here in James chapter one. Really, verse one all the way through verse 18 is dealing with this subject, trials or the testing of our faith. And last week, we talked about verses 1 through 4. Today we're really going to zero in on verses 5 through 11, and then we'll handle that third section next week. But again, the big picture of what we're talking about is trials, or the testing of our faith. 
Now, many of you have heard that last Monday night, a well-known young pastor from my old church committed suicide. Jared Wilson is his name, and Jared tragically left behind a beautiful wife and two beautiful young sons, as well as a notable ministry. And it's been a very, very difficult week for our old church family as they've been trying to navigate through the grief process and uh, try to understand what's going on and help one another and comfort one another. And it's been a heavy week. And in the throes of this heavy trial, understandably, there have been many people who are struggling to make sense of it. They're asking questions like, God, why would you allow this? God, why, why wouldn't you stop him from doing that? Lord, what good could possibly come out of this for his wife or for his little boys? You know, trials have a way of perplexing us. Sometimes when we're in the midst of a heavy trial, it's hard to make sense of which way is up and which way is down, and we find ourselves confused and perplexed and questioning. And in difficult trials, it can be hard to trace God's hand in the midst of them. But church, God knows this. God is aware of this. God knows that we are but dust. He knows how frail we are. And so in the verses before us this morning, starting in verse 5, God is going to offer us a way forward. Last week, what we talked about specifically was how Christians can experience joy in the midst of their trials. And of course, this is radical. This is, in some ways, revolutionary to think that when you're going through your worst times, you could still have joy. But that's exactly what we discussed last week. We talked about how the spiritually mature person is able to maintain joy in the midst of their trials because they realize that God is at work that he is working in them, that he is making them more like Jesus through their trials. Or as verse 4 put it, making them perfect, incomplete, lacking in nothing. So we can have joy because that's what God's doing. He's perfecting us. He's making us more like Christ. Well, that's all fine and well, of course. But what if we're not there yet? What if we're not yet perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? What if we're not yet to this place in our Christian journey where we're impervious to the trials of life, where we're just constantly full of faith, where we never question, where everything is solid and stable and we have the joy of the Lord in our heart constantly in our trials? What do we do then? Well, I'm glad you asked because we have an answer before us this morning, starting in verse five. Let's read it again. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what do we do when trials are robbing our joy? What do we do? Well, the answer is we ask God for wisdom. If we are unable or we're struggling to count it all joy in the midst of our trials, we need to ask God for wisdom. Now, this is so important because oftentimes believers make the mistake of thinking things like this. They're in the middle of a terrible trial. They say, well, if I just had more money, then I'd be okay. Or 
If they would just stop treating me this way, then everything would be okay. Or if I could just get better reports back from the doctor, then everything would be okay. If I would just... No, listen, church. The thing you lack if your trial has suffocated your joy is wisdom. I'll put it to you this way. In order to respond rightly to our trials, we don't need a change in our circumstances but a change in our perspective. And too often we make the mistake of thinking that the reason that our joy has been sucked out of us is because of the trial itself. The circumstance needs to change. This thing is bad. It's got to go so that way I can get into a better place, a happier place. Listen, what we need is we need wisdom. And this is the very thing. You'll see it here in the text that our Heavenly Father is inviting us to come after in this text. He's saying, come to me and ask me for wisdom. Listen, here's the danger that we face in the midst of our trials. The danger we face is this. It's losing God's perspective. We get into the trial. You're in the thick of your suffering, the hardship, the difficult circumstance, And we start looking at the trial and we lose sight of God's perspective, God's vantage point on what is actually going on. And wisdom is what you call it when you get it back. Wisdom is what you call it when you once again are able to see things the way that God sees them. See things the way that is actually right. Now, first and foremost, we need wisdom to see if our trial is self-inflicted. Sometimes our trials are self-inflicted. When I was in fourth grade, I remember very clearly being in the trial of my life up to that point. I had a girl stalker. I know it sounds dramatic, but it feels that way when she pops up out of nowhere on the playground, in the library, it doesn't matter. And so there was this young girl, she's a very nice girl, but she, she liked me and she was constantly, like I said, just popping up everywhere. There I am in the library at school, and oh, wow, what are you doing there? I'm like looking through the books, and you pull one out, and she's right there. Um, so she just pops up again, and, and I looked at her, and she had two friends with her, and I said this to her. I said, I wish you were a bug so I could step on you and squish you. Some of you are like rethinking whether I could be a pastor, huh? How sad is that? And I remember right when those words came out of my little fourth grade mouth, I just felt terrible inside. And her face was just like so crushed. And she turned around and she walked off. I think she went over to the bathroom. And I just felt terrible. Well, fast forward to 30 minutes later, I'm sitting in class. And my teacher says, hey, Daniel, can I talk to you? So she takes me outside of the classroom. I'm standing out there and she looks at me and she says, Daniel, is it true that you said this to so-and-so? And I did what all godly kids do. I lied straight to her face and I said, no. And here's the really tragic thing is that I was such, normally, such a good kid, such an honest, trustworthy kid. She believed my story and not hers. I didn't know that at the time. She just said, okay. And then she sent me back in the classroom and she called the girl back out. And I remember sitting in my seat and I prayed a prayer. And it was a prayer of desperation. And my prayer went like this. God, if you will get me out of this mess, I will never get in trouble again. That was my prayer. 
Well, I didn't get in trouble that day. God got me out of the mess, if you will. And I think the reason was because God wanted to further expose to me how bad I truly am because, of course, that little deal I bartered with God there, how many of you think I lived up to that? That didn't even last probably the rest of the day. I'll never get in trouble again, of course. So then God's showing me, yeah, you will. You're going to continue to make mistakes. But in that moment, had I asked God for wisdom instead of save me from my own consequences here, God probably would have opened my eyes to the fact that this little trial that you're in is self-inflicted. And the right way to get out of this is confession and repentance and making it right. And I wish that that would have been my prayer. God, give me wisdom in this mess. Sometimes our trials are self-inflicted. We're in the middle of a trial. We need to ask God to grant us the wisdom to see our trial for what it is. And if it is self-inflicted, that's the perspective shift that we need. But so often in life, our trials are not self-inflicted. So often in life, our trials have come upon us from the outside and we're just bearing down trying to endure it. But guess what? When that happens, we need God's wisdom all the same. We need a perspective shift if we're going to remain steadfast under the trials that are coming into our lives. If we hope to count them all joy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is in the midst of a severe trial. Paul here describes it as a thorn in the flesh. Nobody knows what it is for sure, but in the middle of this trial, Paul is obviously experiencing great distress. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, as I said, and he says that it's a messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him Kind of scary, huh? Sent to harass him to keep him from becoming conceited. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So I told you last week that God uses our trials to make us more like Jesus. This is what's happening to Paul. This this messenger of Satan, this thorn in his flesh is keeping him from becoming prideful and arrogant. He's keeping Paul humble. Check out what happens in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Paul's writing, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he's saying, God, take this trial away from me. Take this pain. Take this suffering away from me. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul's speaking again. He says, therefore, check this out. I will boast all the more gladly. Do you see the sense of joy in this trial now? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, notice how this works. The circumstances stay, the trial stays, but the perspective shifts. God doesn't take it away. Paul doesn't want it. At first he's saying, I don't like this, I don't want this, I don't understand this. But here's the key, he cries out to God in prayer and God gives him the wisdom to see it from his perspective, to see it from God's perspective. And God's saying to Paul, The trial that you think is weakening you, 
the trial that you think is actually hindering you from doing effective ministry is the very thing that is making you stronger because through this trial, what I'm doing is I'm helping you, I'm forcing you to rely more on me and less on you. I'm keeping you humble and I'm keeping you dependent. The circumstances stay, the perspective shifts. In the midst of our trials, this is what we need. When we're there in the moment and we're saying, I can't make sense of this, I don't understand this, we need God's wisdom. And when we see it from his perspective, nothing changes, but everything changes. It's incredible. Now this side of eternity, we might not get the answer to all of our whys. People have asked me this week, Daniel, do you know why Jared did it? The short answer is no. There are only two people who know exactly why Jared Wilson did what Jared Wilson did. Jared and Jesus. And we have lots of why questions throughout our lives. And we take them and we store them up. And we don't always get those answers to the why did this or why that or why wasn't it. We don't get the why answers all the time. But it's been well said that we don't always know the why, but we do know the who. We do know the who. Spurgeon said of trials, we can't always trace his hand, but we can always trust his heart. One of my favorite quotes. We can't always trace his hand, but we can trust his heart. In other words, what Spurgeon was saying is, we know who God is, and that's good enough. And this is the wisdom that God is eager to give his children in the midst of our trials. A fresh revelation of himself, of his character, and of his promises. God is wanting to remind us or open our eyes, even in our suffering, to the fact that he is good. He is in control. He loves his children. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's going to work all things together for good for those who love him. And as we talked about last week, he wants to remind us that trials are producing something wonderful in us, spiritual maturity, and also preparing something wonderful for us, eternal reward, or what verse 12 calls the crown of life. This is the perspective shift that God wants us to get. This is what we can lose sight of in the midst of our trial. And the enemy starts coming in and wanting to bring thoughts of doubt or even accusation against God. Well, maybe God's not so good. Maybe God's... Wisdom is what we need to zoom out again and see things the way that God sees it. Now, I said that God is eager to give us this wisdom, and I mean it. Look at the verse that says that God is generously giving this to all without reproach. Family, listen, God wants you to be wise. God is not stingy. God's not like withholding from us. God wants you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, maybe he wants that for you, or maybe he wants it for this person. I don't know if he wants it for me. I love how James put to all. Look in the text of verse 5 there. Let him ask God, and we know God gives generously to all without reproach. Wisdom is not reserved for the spiritual elite, wisdom is not reserved for clergy or any other specific group in the church. God would gladly give wisdom 
to all of his children, young, old, male, female, every race, every educational level, every socioeconomic background from this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks, it doesn't matter. The only thing keeping us back from gaining wisdom in our trials is our unwillingness to ask and, and this gets to our second thing, our unwillingness to trust. Look at verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what do we do when trials are robbing our joy? First, we ask God for wisdom. Now we see that we need to ask God in faith. Ask God in faith. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That God is there and that God is good toward his people. Now, James here is going to contrast the person of faith with the person of doubt in their trials here. And notice that the person of faith is the one who receives wisdom from God that renews their joy and gives them the strength to persevere, whereas the person of doubt here receives nothing from God and likely buckles under the weight and burden of their trials. Now, how can we tell the person of faith's prayer apart from the person of doubt? The idea here is that Both people are asking, they're both making a request to God, but one is asking in faith and is receiving, the other is asking with doubt and is not receiving. The person of faith prays, Lord, I don't like this, I don't want this, I don't understand this maybe, but I trust you, but I trust you. Give me wisdom to see this from your perspective. Give me the wisdom to navigate through this in a way that glorifies you. Give me the wisdom to not waste my pain. That's a heart that pleases God. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to not be able to make sense out of everything. But but where is the posture of our heart? Is it in a posture of trust? Where we say, even though I don't get it all, even though I don't understand it all, I still trust you. And I'm, and I'm believing that you're going to supply wisdom and understanding and grace and power to sustain me and to see me through. The person of doubt you'll see in the text here is called double-minded. The word double-minded literally means of two souls. It's like you're a split being. You have two different affections or affinities and you're split between two masters really. And James is here saying, look, the doubting person is double-minded. They're of two different souls. This person doesn't fully trust and rely on the Lord. He doubts, listen, he doubts that God can or will supply the resources that he needs in his hour of trial. So he turns to human resources instead. I don't think God's going to give me what I need. I don't think God can deliver me here, or I don't think he will. So they turn to human resources instead. In their heart, they're saying, I'm going, even though they're praying the prayers, they came to the prayer meeting, they asked the pastor, can we pray for this, help for God's help in this trial? In their own heart, they're saying, look, 
I'm going to manage this myself. I'm going to fix this on my own. And guess what God says? Have at it. You want to go out at it alone? Have at it. But if you want to come to me, you want to trust in me, I would, I would generously give you the wisdom, the grace, the strength to navigate your trials. But so long as you doubt, so long as you're a double-minded woman or a double-minded man, somebody who doesn't believe in who God says he is, believe and trust that God is going to see you through. How about it? See how it works out for you. Family, faith receives because it trusts. Doubt is also directed toward God. It's just that when we doubt, it's totally rejected by him. So we see this morning that God is inviting us to ask for his wisdom to persevere in the midst of our trials. And he generously gives it to us. God is giving us the ability to see things from his perspective. Now, when you look at verses 9 through 11, it could appear that James is now just shifting subjects. Like we were just talking about wisdom, we were talking about trials, and now it seems as if he's shifting his attention to money. And he's talking about money. But here's the connection. If you were here last week, you'll remember that the great trial that the majority of these Christians who received this letter were experiencing was that they were living in poverty at the hands of the oppressive rich. So to put it differently, these poor Christians were being exploited and oppressed by their wealthy non-Christian employers. So what's happening in these verses is James is applying wisdom to their situation. In other words, he's saying, let me help you guys get God's perspective on your current trial. With that lens, look at verse 9. Let's read these verses again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. How then should these suffering, impoverished, oppressed believers see this terrible situation? What wisdom could they receive that would help them to remain steadfast and persevere under trial? Well, James says that these lowly brothers and sisters, i.e. the poor, should boast in their exaltation. What exaltation? Boast in their exaltation? They're not being exalted. They're being trampled underfoot. What, What does he mean when he says that they can boast in their exaltation? Well, the key comes from this. It comes from the fact that these poor people who are suffering are brothers. Do you see that in the text? They're brothers. They're brothers and sisters, meaning that they're members of God's family. They're one of God's children. And if that's true, then here's what Romans 8, 17 tells us. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What he's saying is, look, because you belong to Jesus, Because you are children of God by faith now, you are heirs of all that is God, or God's rather. You're heirs of that. You're co-heirs with Christ. And so they could boast at the exaltation that was to come at the resurrection 
of Christ. What about the oppressive rich? Well, here's what he says to them, that they ought to learn to bring themselves low now, humiliation. Learn to bring themselves low now to boast in their lowliness, because if not, they're going to fade away in the midst of their pursuits. In other words, here's what James is saying to the church. He's saying, look, the poor and suffering Christians ought to joyfully endure their trials now because someday soon the great reversal is going to take place at the return of Christ. Now we know that this great reversal already began 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to this earth. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What an amazing verse. That verse is telling us that 2,000 years ago, God the Son left the glories and the riches of heaven and became poor at the incarnation. Why did he do it? For your sake, for my sake, for our sake. Jesus of Nazareth, God incarnate, did that to rescue us from our sins and to bring us back to God. And now by faith in him, faith in his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, we, like the believers here, are united to Christ and are therefore children of God. And that means that you are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. That's royalty. That's exaltation. That's worthy of our boast, no matter what your life is like. This is the perspective shift. This is the wisdom that would help these believers to remain steadfast under trial. James is saying, God has not abandoned you. God is still with you. God has a plan in Christ that is actually going to be a great reversal of all of your current suffering. He's saying to them and he's saying to us, God has prepared for you who have put your faith in Christ an eternal weight of glory that so far surpasses all of your temporary sufferings that if God showed you the half of it, you wouldn't even believe it. Most of us are familiar with Joseph's story in the latter chapters of Genesis, and I want to conclude with it. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He was just a young teenage boy. He was taken down to Egypt. Joseph ended up in the house of a very powerful man, probably the third most powerful man in Egypt at the time, a man named Potiphar, and he was a slave there. Joseph ended up working diligently and having integrity and worked his way up to the point that he was actually in charge of all of Potiphar's household, all of his affairs. He just left it all to Joseph. Joseph was doing very well for himself until one day when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, this young, handsome man, and asked, invited him in to have sex with her. And he said no. And he maintained his integrity and he fled away from her. And then she falsely accused him of attempting to rape her. And Potiphar, with this story from his wife, takes Joseph and throws him into prison. And so Joseph is now back at the bottom again and he finds himself in a dungeon in Egypt. He's there toiling away for years until eventually, by interpreting dreams, he's called up to interpret the dream of Pharaoh himself. And when he does it, Pharaoh exalts him to the place of prime minister. And now Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt, which was the 
dominating world empire at this time in human history. And Joseph is second in command. Suddenly a famine hits. And when this famine hits, there is literally no food. But thankfully, Joseph was warned by God in a dream that this famine would come and they had stored up tons and tons of resources, tons and tons of grain in Egypt. And so people from not only Egypt, but all the surrounding areas are coming to Egypt to buy grain to survive this famine. And Joseph's dad, a very old man at this time, hears the good news that there's food down there in Egypt. So he tells his boys, you need to go down there, get us some food so we don't starve out here. And the boys do. And all of these brothers travel down to Egypt and they go and they have to meet with the prime minister to negotiate a trade. When they discover that they are not only facing the prime minister of Egypt, but they're actually being reunited with their brother that they had betrayed and sold into slavery many years earlier, they were terrified. I would be too. Like, hey, my bad. Can we just forgive and forget what happened back there? Sorry. They're terrified. They assume that Joseph, now as the one in the position of power, the one who's in the position of strength, that he's going to repay them for what they had done. But here's what Joseph says. Genesis 50, verse 20. He looks at his brothers and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, church, I bring this story up because I want to ask you this question. How many times do you imagine that Joseph, during all of those years of hardship, falsely accused of rape, thrown into a dungeon, rejected by his own brothers, how many times during those years do you think that Joseph had questions? Where Joseph was sitting there as a young man saying, Lord, I don't get it. My parents raised me in the ways of the Lord. They taught me the difference between right and wrong. And I'm trying to have integrity. I'm trying to do it the way that you're telling me to do it. And these things are happening. Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand. I would imagine he had lots of questions. I know I would. But from everything we know in the pages of scripture about this young man, Joseph, he was a man who constantly trusted in the Lord. He remained faithful to God. He loved the Lord and he obeyed God. And when it was all said and done, when he could zoom out and get the macro picture of his life, God's perspective on his life, he was able to see that God was wise, that God is good, that God was faithful to him, that God had a plan for him. And Joseph, just like every saint, throughout the history of the church, was able to say when it was all said and done, it is well with my soul. Family, this is the perspective that we need. This is the perspective shift that some of us might need this morning in our hour of trial. And God is eager this morning to once again give his wisdom to you. That your trial, even though God might not have sent it into your life, God is going to take that trial, just like Joseph's trials were brought on by the sins of other people. God is going to take what they might have meant for evil and he can turn it to good in his amazing and strong and wise hands. 
And in you, he's going to be transforming you into the character of Christ. Through you, he's going to be using you to impact other people and minister to other people who are going through similar circumstances. And when it's all said and done, and we stand before God, it's going to be a crown of life, according to verse 12, that those who remain faithful in their trials, continue to trust in Christ through their trials, are going to receive for all of eternity. So family, let us keep in our hearts this day, this week, for the rest of our lives, Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. God, I am so thankful for your amazing love for your children. Sometimes I think to myself, what would I do when I'm going through incredible trial, incredible difficulty, if it wasn't for you, Lord? Where can someone turn when the bottom falls out in life, when it's completely hopeless? If not to you, Lord. And God, I'm so grateful that when men and women and children come to their senses in their lives, then they turn to heaven and they look to you for wisdom, they look to you for grace, that you're not stingy, Lord. You will not reproach us when we come to you, but you will give to us generously. What a gracious, kind, good Heavenly Father you are. Lord, we know that you are this way because we can look to the life, death, and resurrection of your Son as the only proof, the only evidence that we need that you love us, that you are with us, and that you are for us. God, you sent your own Son 2,000 years ago to die for our sins and rise for our justification to prove to us, to demonstrate to us the depths of your love for us. So Lord, I pray that this morning, for those of us who are in an hour of great trial in our lives, that you would renew our hope and our trust and our faith in you. That we would collectively be a people that are asking for your wisdom to not waste our pain, but to leverage it for your kingdom and your glory and the good of those around us. Lord, I pray that you would comfort and that you would be with those who are suffering even now. Lord, for any in our midst that are not in a trial, maybe things are going great, God, would you please help them to store these truths in their hearts so that when that hour does come upon them, because it will, that, Lord, they will know to call on you in faith, receiving your wisdom, your perspective on their trials. Lord, as they do that, we know that they will be able to remain steadfast. So, Lord, Thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for instructing us in your word this morning. We give you all the praise, all the glory. And God, I pray that you would help us through every season of our life to maintain the joy of the Lord, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.